Hello, and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries, where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. My name is Evan Villari. I serve as the director of the Center for Media Production at Johnson & Wales University, where I'm also a professor of media practice in the Media and Communication Studies program, and I'm also an independent filmmaker. My pronouns are he, him. Thank you for joining us. A little bit later in the show, we will talk about Evan's most recent documentary, Blood and Watershed, which is all about the creation of the Situate Reservoir, Um, which fun fact, I grew up in Situate. I was there from grade four um, until a couple of years ago when I moved out of my parents' house. Wild. What part of Situate? North Situate. North Situate. Oh, Mm -hmm. the the part of Situate that was spared (laughs) by the Reservoir Project. Yeah. Yes. But before we get into that, let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading? So I've been researching a new project about uh, local basketball and the influence of a very small court in the town of North Providence and how it went on to produce upwards of 20 players who either played in a league there or played on the court and went on to the NBA. So uh, not the most exciting read necessarily, but as part of research, um, I recently purchased and read the In Your Face Basketball book. Uh, this is a book by Chuck Wielgis and Alexander Wolf. Alexander Wolf still writes for Sports Illustrated. And what they did is they went around to small basketball courts, street ball courts all over the country. And I was able to identify this book because it references the very court that is the subject of my next film. So that's the most recent read. In addition to that, a book about uh, the town of North Providence and the politics specifically, a wonderful, wonderful book called Wired by Paul F. Carancy. Um, it tells the story of a local politician who had to make a very difficult decision, and he wore a wire in order to capture conversations uh, amongst his colleagues, fellow council members who were involved in some small-time corruption and led to a big FBI case. So uh, those are the two most recent reads that I've been working through. Um, I know you kind of were like, oh, not that interesting, but I'm sure basketball fans would probably find the first read interesting. Yeah, no no question about it. Uh, but it's it's sort of like a handbook as opposed to like a deep dive. It's not, I, So I, I'm drawn more towards uh, nonfiction, um, you know, historical tracing. It's very much, you can point to, just by the cover and the title, you can point to the year that it was published. It's like 1989, but um, <laughs> it's, it's really valuable. Um, I love being able to go through and scour the internet, find very, very specific information um, contained within a book that will support uh, ongoing research. So, yeah. Fantastic. In my continued effort this year to try to read a nonfiction and a fiction book at the same time, I don't know if I will read this book cover to cover, but I read the intro so far, and it's definitely been interesting, um, is a book called Fat Girls Hiking. Um, It's all about the author's experience getting into hiking as a self-described fat person. And... um, There is an organization of the same name that she started uh, in the West Coast. I believe she's Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. So it kind of started over there, but now they have chapters all over the country and they really focus on being a community for other fat plus size, however people identify um, 
people who enjoy the hobby of hiking, um, but they also try to be very inclusive. They try to find ADA compliant trails for people who um, need that because of some physical disability. Um, And so it seemed really interesting to me that uh, an organization that was trying to make hiking accessible to people who don't traditionally get included in that conversation if you uh I recently have become more interested in doing like shorter day hikes um and so that's kind of what led me to this book um but when you read blogs online that tell you about what you're supposed to be bringing what you're supposed to be buying or whatever it's a it's a lot of skinny white women or white men but for me if I'm looking for clothes I'm not reading blogs that men are writing you know like things like that um (laughs) But yeah, so um, I appreciated them kind of trying to change the narrative and create this community for people who aren't traditionally welcomed into the hobby. So what came first? Was it the book or your renewed interest in hiking? I would say my renewed interest in hiking with a caveat that I bought this book for the library when I refreshed our nonfiction collection fairly recently before I got really like, I would like to start doing this again. But I think that seed was in the back of my mind when I bought that book for the nonfiction collection. That's a nice work park, right? If you you have access, (laughs) you can be like, I kind of think this will be cool. Maybe I can check it out. But also, again, it was like trying to make my nonfiction collection a little more diverse and not yeah yeah, not have the narrative I think I found this book trying to get our 600 like for those familiar with Dewey like 610 through 620 is a lot of health topics and in there is a lot of diet books sure and um partially because of uh, the maintenance phase podcast, I had recently become somewhat, you know, on that anti-diet culture bandwagon. And then I look in this section of the library and it's just a section that's supposed to be about nutrition and being healthy is filled with a ton of stuff about how to lose weight and this diet and that diet and whatever. And I was just like, I need something to counter this narrative. And what better way to do it than in a public library, right? What what better way to, to sort of push back on that, you know, existing sort of monopolization of health? Um, I really like that. That's exciting. So there is some authority there, right? It's uh, that you you have the ability to select and curate. Um, a part of me is forever envious of librarians and the work that they do. But then at the same time, you know, I can also admire from afar um, and and just just simply appreciate. So that's really nice. I like that. I think I think of it more as a responsibility than an authority. Oh, yes. Yes. It's a responsibility. Yeah. A responsibility to continue the much is my ability coming into it with the biases that I have trying to, again, when I see these narratives happening in our collections and they aren't super representative narratives to try to counter that even though the book i i'm talking about did not end up in the 600s for all you for all you dewey uh experts out there hiking would end up in 700s with arts and leisure because it's considered a hobby Um, so anyone out there who's like taylor you're cataloging things wrong one that's not my job (laughs) two it is cataloged correctly but again, it was something I kind of stumbled on, especially the when you're when you're doing book buying, it's a little more like shopping, so a little less like, you know, it's giving you suggestions, you're you're discovering things somewhat serendipitously, so it's a little bit less of like this section is what I'm looking for. Sure. 
So that's your nonfiction, yeah? That's my nonfiction. Yeah. Um, and then my fiction pick is I could no longer live with my curiosity about Fourth Wing, which is a very popular right now. It's kind of in this new emerging genre, romance fantasy. The author was a somewhat popular, but not like a huge household name romance author and then she kind of had this breakout hit with fourth wing in the fantasy genre i'm still not super far into it but i'm really starting to get into it um this world has dragons um and it does have magic but the dragons are the only ones that can basically like grant people magical powers in this world um which they call signets the world is called signet no the powers are called sign- oh, the powers okay yeah where where is it set? Oh, this is the thing that I'm running into with like realizing that I don't read as much fantasy as I like watch fantasy is like I'm reading the things on the page and I'm like I have no idea how to pronounce that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there is a world, there is like a Middle Earth equivalent. Yeah, yeah. Navir, I think it is. Navir, okay. Just own it. You can always tell someone who's a reader when they mispronounce words. It's like, because I'm just saying them yeah. in my head so I can get onto the next line, right? So Navir, Navir A, I don't know if the E is silent or not. Just own it. <laughs> so they've been in this long time war with a neighboring kingdom. And so their war college is conscripting people every year. And this young woman joins the writer's quadrant because her mother is like the general of the army or something she's very high ranking and she basically was like no child of mine is gonna be in any other quadrant but the writer's quadrant even though this young woman would be a very good scribe you have to maintain the legacy yes and her father was a scribe but her father has passed away so it's kind of this thing of like she's feeling pulled towards the father's legacy but the mother is like no So she forces her to go into the writer's quadrant, even though she's very weak. She was ill as a child. And the writer's quadrant is like the most cutthroat quadrant. People die getting initiated. Oh, wow. Yeah, you have to like walk this parapet, they call it, to like this skinny like stone wall. And uh, just to get into the quadrant and become part of it. So people die like just trying to join. And then all through the first year, there's all these challenges that lead to people dying. And like, it's such cutthroat competition. So other cadets are killing people or out to get people. Yeah. So it's like. That's too violent for me. Um, yeah, I mean, it hasn't been like super gory in the details, so I've been fine with it. It's just soulless. You know, there are a bunch of people. Now there are fewer. Any questions? All right. Do you want to do this? (laughs) And the main character is kind of questioning it. There are moments where the main character is all like, how are we? Because it's kind of when when cadets die, they like read out their names and then like, that's it. So even the main character is is questioning it, and I'm I don't know I'm getting a vibe that this main character might change the way things are. I would hope so. I also at the, at this point in the book I'm just like this is going to be enemies to lovers, isn't it? So that's where I'm at right now. But I'm also invested, so we'll follow it through. But <laughs> do you go one chapter nonfiction, one chapter fiction, or do you just read until you're done and you need a little break? Um, what I've been trying to do is read nonfiction in the morning and then read fiction in the evening. Interesting. And I've been reading my fiction book in the morning just because it's 
It's actually overdue. Don't tell anyone. Uh Um, (laughs) But I want to finish it so bad that I'm going to return it after Thanksgiving, I promise. Well, can't you just renew? No, because it's so new that there's people waiting. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I didn't override and renew it for myself. Oh, okay. I'm sitting in the lateness. It's late okay. on my account right now. We're sitting in the consequences, but we also don't charge fines anymore. So that's why I'm like... Oh, really? <laughs> a lot of other systems have at this point, but Cranston made a decision to go fine-free on almost everything. What about media, like recorded media, like DVDs? Yeah, DVDs are, are fine-free, I believe, unless really? they are express. Ex- our express collection, we still have fines because we want to keep those sure. moving quickly because express is two days for DVDs, seven for express books. So I believe those still have fines. Some of our like non-book materials still have fines because they were an investment for us to to get like some educational materials we also have some like tools that you'll only ever need once like a stud finder like you need that when you hang all your pictures when you move in and then you never need it again right so we'll let you borrow one instead of you needing to buy a stud finder and things like that so obviously this decision was made to encourage people to come back, you know, and meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so how long ago was that decision made? And was that like sort of a Rhode Island thing? Was that a a national thing? Is it sort of jurisdiction by jurisdiction? Yeah, it's town by town. So Ocean State Libraries is connected that we're a consortium and we have the, uh, the resource sharing agreement. But each library still dictates how they assign fines because each library still dictates how they use their budget. So like OSL doesn't want to make a decision for every library, including small libraries to like cut off that revenue stream. So, um, cause it is revenue for some libraries, sure. especially smaller libraries. So it's, it's town by town in each library deciding what they want to do. But I think, I don't want to say that we started a trend, but I feel like we were one of the first we stopped charging fines on kids' books like years ago, and then we made a decision to do that across the collection. And I'm assuming maybe with some few exceptions, there hasn't been mass exploitation of that. No, not that I know of. Our assistant director was the real champion of us doing this. She was the one who did a lot of the research. And um, I was at one of the meetings where she was convincing the board because it was at my library. And some people were like, well, yeah, what about people having responsibility for the items or whatever? But yeah, from what we see, the, it doesn't seem like overall people are really taking advantage of it beyond yeah sometimes maybe they hold on to things a few more days than they would but they they bring it back like ultimately the trend we're seeing is that across the board the materials do make it back to us that's really great oh i have a fiction coming up so somebody had reached out to me actually related to um my film blood and watershed a resident of situate um jean paul farrow wrote this book here, The Devil and the Blacksmith. And so I'm excited to start reading it. I read the first couple of pages. It's very Lovecraft-esque. It ultimately lands in situate. Uh, You might be interested in it. It has like fantasy elements, historic elements as well. And uh, I know the listeners can't see, but it's got beautiful illustrations that Jean-Paul was responsible for as well. So uh, really cool. Uh, So I'm not going to eliminate... Fiction entirely, but I'm I'm not going to get to this fully until I wipe a few more things off of the 
dock it. <laughs> I I feel you there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. So we spent a lot of time talking about books. Um, was there anything in the what you've been watching? Because I want us to have time to talk about your doc. But was there anything in the what have you been watching segment that you were like really excited about? You're going to be disappointed that we didn't get to. So I'm a film person and my entire life I've been drawn to the motion picture, uh, partially because I had difficulty hearing uh, a lot of procedures as a kid. Um, my left ear is more or less shot. My right ear is certainly my dominant one. That's the reason why you'll always see me with just one ear pod in. Uh, it's the one that works. And I also grew up, you know, in MTV era. I can literally remember going from like three channels to 64 channels and MTV being a thing. And so for better or for worse, I was part of the conditioning. You say what you want about today's kids and generation. Like we were a part of that. Um, and so I did, a, you know, my entire life up through um, graduate school was dedicated to, to just studying television and really studying film. And I would watch three movies a day. And I'd go to, you know, whatever the Oscar contenders were, whatever the hot, you know, indies were. And then I just started getting comfortable. And I started going to the work that I'm most familiar with. And so usually when I watch things, I'm watching films from like 1995. It was a great <laughs> year for films. Well, like 90, 93 to like 99, which is a great year for films. It's also when I was, you know, maturing as uh, and someone who was understanding how films were made. And you know, I, I love 90s television as well. So that's mostly what I watch. But I also do like uh, filmmakers who are very influential to me in that era. And that's Martin Scorsese in particular. So the last film I saw in the theater was Killers of um, the Flower Moon. Killers of the Flower Moon was the last film that I saw by Martin Scorsese. And it's an absolute masterpiece. It's very, very, you have to invest time. It's very long. And it's very, uh, at times, meditative. It's probably Robert De Niro's, no, unquestionably, Robert De Niro is the superstar in it. He's even better than Leo, um, one of his best performances. And just aesthetically, it's visually, visually stunning. And uh, I need to mention that. But uh, that's a rare treat. It has to be like a true living master for me to go get excited about a movie. But that was the last one that I saw in the theater and was so pleased to be able to experience it. Happy belated birthday, Martin Scorsese's birthday was on Friday, 81. Wow. Yeah, still doing it. So for you, worth it almost four hours. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. I, I went with uh, my friend, my uh, co-writer, and we were like, should we go at nine? And we're like doing the math. Like, we're getting too old for this. We went at like a seven o'clock show and... We were just exhausted. Usually, you know, you get out, you have that, you know, post-screening like discussion, that little buzz, the walk to the car. And we were just like, see you later. And we had to like decompress. It was a lot to Bye. take in. But uh, I would say if you're going to go see it, matinee would be the way to go. <laughs> Is the move. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Explore a world of languages with your library and Mango Languages. This online language learning system can help you learn languages like Spanish, French, Brazilian Portuguese, Mandarin Chinese, Urdu, Igbo, and so much more. Self-paced lessons and real-world conversations make Mango Languages perfect for learning a new language or brushing up on old skills. Get started at cranstonlibrary.org databases. 
Looking to upgrade your computer skills? Cranston Public Library is here to help. At the Central Library, we offer computer classes throughout the month on topics like computer basics, using email, and introduction to various Microsoft programs like Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. We even offer some intermediate classes to allow you to keep leveling up your skills. We also hold open tech time Tuesday and Thursday afternoons from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. at the Central Library and Wednesdays 2 to 4 p.m. at the William Hall Library. At open tech time, you can get one-on-one -on -one help with specific tech questions or learn how to use a new device that you just purchased. For more information about computer classes, go to cranstonlibrary.org computers. Well, moving on to talk about the film that you came here to talk about. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Blood and Watershed? So the film was made possible through rounds of grant support from Rhode Island Council for the Humanities, who really saw in my initial application some years ago, the potential to share a story, not only that hits the residents of Rhode Island, but hopefully it's an American story. This is not that unusual. At the turn of the last century, as population was rising and water supplies were getting pushed to their limits, municipalities were enforcing eminent domain, taking over large swaths of land in order to create public water supplies. I mean, it was done not only here in the state of Rhode Island, it was done in New York, famous example, famous example also of California water wars, et cetera. But what we often neglect and what we often take for granted and what the film was sort of inspired by was this idea of like, what is the price of progress? Who had to sacrifice? And there were five villages in the town of Situate, thriving, bustling communities, people working in shops and residences who were pretty much door by door approached by the city of Providence and told that they had to leave. And as a result, the city of Providence was able to build what at the time was considered the freshest, best water in the country. And the price that had to be paid was relocating people and raising all homes, all structures. My research has proven that, you know, despite what people say, when you're going over the causeway, when the water levels are low, you can see the steeples of the church. I've been able to debunk that. They literally took everything down to the ground. And with that, people who had been there for generations, some of the people that had been there for generations did not want to move. And what I was able to find through my research is at least six people committed suicide as a result of the condemnation of their property, three of which are mentioned in the film. So it's sort of a reflection on history and telling the story of something that was really an absolute engineering feat. It was a marvel for the time. It was built during the Great War. They had to pause and then they resumed and they did it relatively quickly. It was an enormous undertaking. And the plan was for it to last, the reservoir for it to last, and to be able to support increased growing population until 1970. So everything from the dams and the aqueducts and what they would refer to as trunks that get to the existing water delivery system that were laid as early as 1870. All that stuff was designed to last until 1970. And I found it really fascinating that here we are, 50 years past that expiration date, we're still using the same water supply. And now it's not just the city of Providence, Cranston, Johnston, North Providence, as it was originally planned to support. 
uh, Providence Water, who was the entity responsible for collecting the water and distributing, treating and distributing the water to the population. It now includes Lincoln, all parts of Smithfield, Bristol, Rhode Island, East Providence, West Warwick, Warwick, um, folks that live in Kent County. They're wholesale customers of Providence Water. You know, their bill's going to say Kent County Water Authority, but Kent County Water Authority is purchasing that water wholesale from Providence Water. Oh, wow. And it's fascinating how it just keeps continuing to grow and grow and grow and grow. And although there have been improvements made or in terms of storage, right? So there have been these sub-reservoirs that have been created in the 60s in order to sort of extend the shelf life. I found it really fascinating that few people, including myself, both a ratepayer and a citizen, know about this history. And so I thought it was an interesting story to tell. And as a documentary filmmaker who uses autobiography, I started infusing myself. And then the film ultimately becomes a story about the uh, shared relationship between father and son. There's a lot of passing back and forth. There was a lot of privilege. There were a lot of insider deals that were happening while um, land was being condemned, father to son mostly. And then uh, my father, who is a character (laughs) unto himself, he became increasingly a part of the film. And really the whole entire last act of the film is about my relationship with my dad. And so um, the word blood has really a double meaning. It means, you know, the blood that was literally shed as a result of the condemnation, but it also has to do with familial ties, father to son. So, sorry, also going to insert another fun fact related to my relationship with Situate. So I told sure. you, we moved to Situate. I started fourth grade at North Situate Elementary School. Third grade is when you learn about the reservoir and all the history of Situate. <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm sure they're not teaching third graders about a lot of the things that are in the documentary, but, you know, the, the broad strokes yeah. that these villages were, at least, again, this is what I understand from what I heard about what people learned previously, but it's it was just kind of funny that it was like, oh, so I, <laughs> I moved to this new town and I missed all of the information about the new town because you all did that last year. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> they also learned to play recorder the year before oh. and I missed that too. Oh, no, hot cross buns. You'll never be the same. Oh, that's funny. Um, Yeah, you know, and a big part of that is a lot of the folks live in the community. They live on properties that are adjacent to the watershed. And, you know, part of it is, you know, building stewardship. And I think part of it is forced indoctrination, like stay off the land. Um, We don't have enough people circling the property to keep you off. Um, But what that ends up doing, frankly, by preventing folks to go and explore literally in their backyard, um, what that does is it forces someone like me, a very curious person, to want to know why. And so if you're going to surround acres upon acres of forestry in the center of which there's a Y-shaped body of water, and every 50 feet there's a yellow sign that says stay out, I'm going to want to know why. Um, And so you know, a big part of, I think, Providence Water's uh, community building is centered in the towns of Situate and Foster in an attempt to explain why, uh, explain why we need to protect that. And so as an outsider growing up in North Providence, I had an uncle who lived in Situate. I would go over there. I'd go over the Gaynor Dam. And my grandfather used to point out to the reservoir, and this is sort of like a little bit of voiceover in the uh, first act of the film. My grandfather used to point and say, people used to live under there. 
And so you tell a five-year-old that, and it's just like, what's happening? Were there like these giant waves? Was it like Moses? Like what's happening? And so like that always sort of stuck with me. A and biblical so be, calamity. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of was. It depends yeah. on sort of yeah. the interpretation and who's writing it, um, because this was a big, big deal. So yeah, those are parts of the seed of like, you know, how how do you germinate an idea? How do you incubate an idea and allow it to grow? And so it, it took nearly 35 years for me to sort of tell that story from my perspective. And then, you know, it changes. One of the things that I enjoy about filmmaking as opposed to traditional journalism is I can take a stand and I can sort of imagine things and I can leave things unresolved and I can be very selective in terms of what elements I use. And there's something liberating, but there's also something sort of terrifying for some people. What I'm drawn to is the exploration and the discovery of information and then trying to fit all these pieces together. And I think with some sequences of the film, I do an okay job. And I'm sure other time, you know, if I maybe had more money, more time, there wasn't a pandemic in the middle of the production, <laughs> things would have turned out differently. But I'm quite proud of the film that was made and just excited by the feedback that I've been able to receive from people who otherwise wouldn't have known the story or wouldn't have known me as a, a storyteller. So your interest in this story came from your family connections to Situate, even though you didn't grow up there? Yeah. I mean, just my exposure to it, right? Mm -hmm. My grandfather used to take me wild blueberry picking in the protected watershed. And he would say like, you know, people used to live under there. So <laughs> it was that sort of initial. And then I moved to Western Cranston, not far from uh, what's referred to as the um, aqueduct reservoir. It's one of the sub reservoirs that was created in the 1960s. And it sparked my interest um, in sort of th this idea, like, it's not like Cox or Verizon. We don't have a choice. It's either we collect water ourselves, we have a well. And I, you know, I live on a historic property. I actually have two wells. Uh, but if you live in the city, you don't have a choice. You're getting the water that's been treated, how they've treated it. You're taking it from the pipes that are as old as and may contain things, um, and you just have trust. And if you don't have the means to go to your grocery store and buy bottled water or go to a fountain and fill up, then that's all you have. And to me, that is sort of what was driving me from a public standpoint. And I think this is part of the reason why the support from Rhode Island Council for the Humanities was really, really essential and important is because it's not just those folks who have the ability to create filters. It's the people who might live in communities where they can't even question its water from this supply or none at all. So um, it's, it's all of these things, a little bit of childhood, and it's a little bit of my curiosity now of like, why just the one? If we don't have a choice, can we, can we at least discover the story of how it came to be? And can we ask questions about what's in our water and how does that water get from the reservoir to the tap? And what kind of exposure to outside ferrous materials are we um, susceptible to? Yeah. And I think you're opening that discussion up with the documentary at an interesting time because I know I've been reading a lot about PFAS in the water supply and what a pervasive problem it is. Seems to be like they still, you know, they're still researching. They still don't know everything about it, but testing seems to be like everywhere they're testing, they're finding it. And, you know, like that's, that's really scary. It is. Um, you know, and the reality is when you're dealing with 
public utilities. It's, I mean, I would never want to be an engineer at this level, right? I mean, people are relying on your expertise in order to make the right decisions. There's a lot of pressure there. Mm -hmm. But you also have to keep in mind, and this is me sort of like having produced the film, maybe, you know, if you had asked me a year ago, I'd have a very different opinion, but having the perspective of like, well, how do we produce the best water possible based on what common practice is? And it's really a slippery slope. I mean, the best way to do it would be us gathering it directly from the sky. But, you know, there's still factors that we would have to um, put into place and measures that we would have to place in order to make sure that it is, you know, devoid of the toxins that can gather. Um, it's Yeah, it's it's really a big problem. But, you know, if we consider the fact that the globe is made of 70% of this stuff, our bodies are also, and now nearing 70% of the state of Rhode Island is pulling from this same water supply, we should be able to question it. And I think that's it. We should just be able to look at it and say like, hey, are we taking this for granted? And where does it come from? And why? When you said about the wells, I also always felt like a deep irony that because growing up at Situate, we had well water, that it's almost everyone who lives in Situate has well water, which obviously is the same you know, the groundwater is is connected to the reservoir because that's how water Gets works. Gathered, that's how right. the water table <laughs> works. Um, but I always felt it was like kind of ironic that we are home of the water for, like you said, 70% of the state and none of us are using it because we all have wells. It's, it's beautiful irony. Um, but, you know, the plus side is, you know, for all the sacrifice, those that are on wells, and there are some parts, I think some parts of Hope, which is technically a village within Situate, mm -hmm. uh, I believe they are on city. Uh, I think they pull from um, Kent County, but the most part, it's Wells. Um, yeah, it's really, it's it's a beautiful bit of irony. You can look in your backyard and you can see the water, but you're getting it literally right there from your property. And there's a brook that runs through my parents' property that we think must run to the reservoir. Yeah, I mean, they all do. They yeah. also, I mean, that's part of the reason why the reservoir was selected as a location. It's kind of in a valley. It's at the confluence of two rivers. So yeah, that too. Like, like we're not, e we're not like even near any of the, like, you know, you're talking about the fenced off property or anything, but we're watching water that's flowing <laughs> to the reservoir, mm -hmm. literally like in our yard. Um, so we wrap up the show with a segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish-related question. So I thought I would ask you, what is the worst, best book you've ever read? So a book that you didn't really initially like, but you learned to appreciate over time. Oh, I wish I had this one in advance. Does it have to be like super highbrow? No, this is a no judgment zone. Or at least I'm not judging. I can't say about our listeners, but... I would hope our listeners aren't judging so you. How about, can I say, a series of books <laughs> yeah. from the same author, right? So there was this author named John Belairs, mm -hmm. who as a kid, he kind of wrote like these mystery sort of sci-fi-ish um, tales, um, one with, you know, like a young man named Anthony and sort of his neighbor, the professor. And I used to just read them because I thought they were just, just pleasant reads. You know, it provided a degree of escapism. And then my son was, you know, devouring books and I started making recommendations and I had them all. And I realized that they're actually really, really extraordinarily written and um, 
So I would say that would be something that I certainly judged by the cover. Like I felt like I was the only kid that was reading them when I was young. And then when I went back to discover them through reading with my son, I was just like, wow, these stories are captivating. And the illustrations, I think Edward Gorey is the illustrator, really quite beautiful. So I don't know if that's a great answer, but there, it's it's difficult for me to not like something if it's new. Mm. So there's such a thing as like writing that might be very stream of conscious or you know all over the place, disorganized. It just changes how I have to throttle reading it. I'll just take it apart in smaller chunks, but uh, I'm always just fascinated by somebody else's perspective. And I try to look at writing and sort of like the consumption of um, books as, you know, just growing perspective. I think that's a pretentious a really answer good, is what no, it is. No, I was going to say that's a really good perspective to have where I feel like sometimes I do get a little judgy. Um, I had written this question kind of thinking more about like, you know, maybe books you read in school that at first you were like, uh, about, but now you're like, oh no, that genuinely was very good. Like, I think the first time I asked this question, I had said about Macbeth. Again, we're we're being very stereotypical English major here. I love Shakespeare. Took two Shakespeare classes. Rick offers two of them, and I took them both, um, partially because the professor who does them is amazing. That's um, always nice. <laughs> but uh, my first time reading Macbeth was in tenth grade, and I remember it just being like a real slog. Like a lot of other kids in the class didn't really get it. Like we spent so much of it just being like, this is what this section means. And this is what happened. And then fast forward to me doing it in college. And we were able to talk about, we're able to talk about it on a deeper level. We're able to, uh, that class was about, um, I forget exactly what the theory was called, but about performance. We talked a lot about like how they were staged at the time and read like historical documents. Um, So I learned through Macbeth that a lot of times blood was portrayed on the Shakespearean stage as ribbons. So like if someone got stabbed and they're pulling, you know, (laughs) someone's pulling ribbons out of them. And, and that was kind of like, so that just added like a level to it that I wasn't getting initially when, talking about it where it's just like ah, oh, this is such a slog we're spending so much time just making sure everyone knows what's happening in the and we're not going any deeper versus when I was able to revisit again and it's like oh we can go so much deeper we could talk about what things mean we're talking about how like imagining how it might have been staged at the time based on the on the primary sources that we have talking about the theater at the time yeah I don't I'm, I think it- it makes sense. So I'm I'm probably not going to give that answer uh, because <laughs> this is awful. I didn't really read what I was assigned. I was I was a lifelong reader, always going to libraries, always mm-hmm. purchasing books. My mother was an educator, and I like options. <laughs> I don't like assignments. Yeah. And so I'm not saying I wouldn't do the work, but like I don't remember many like high school assigned reading. I know they exist. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I didn't read them because I just. <laughs> I want to read what I want to read and what I'm interested mm-hmm. in. And that's not to say I can't sit in a class and sort of like put the you know pieces together, understand how our narrative is structured and, you know, and not do the cliff notes route. But um, yeah, and, and maybe, maybe that's my answer. Maybe I should have <laughs> taken the assignment seriously, but I don't think so. I think I, things turned out okay. I still continue to get excited by reading and going to libraries. I mean, there's been many instances, there have been many instances when I've started reading something and I'm like, I just, this is not good. Mm -hmm. And I just put it on the shelf. But um, 
there are very few instances when I don't go back with a different perspective and finish it. And there's always something valuable in them. Well, I commend you for that then, because I frequently do not finish and then, well, not frequently, but I, I, I definitely am a life's too short to not abandon a book if it's not doing it for you. But I think I sometimes do it in the hope that, yeah, maybe I could circle back in a better mind space, but I feel like I rarely ever do. It's more just the time, right? Yeah. I think it, it, with time management, you can get to anything, even the junk. <laughs> so where can people watch your documentary before we wrap up? Perhaps you can share a link to the film. It's available on PBS's website. You can also check your local listings for the next airing of Blood and Watershed. It is going to be programmed off and on between now and 2025. Well, thank you for chatting with me today. Thank you, Taylor. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you would like to reach out to the show uh, and to answer our last chapter question or maybe to suggest one, you can email us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. And you can also reach out to the show via social media with the hashtag downtimecpl. If you're feeling generous, please rate review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more Downtime. Oh, is Dave going to tell me the exact Dewey number? It's fine to disrespect Dewey whenever possible. Yes, that's true.